Hey, I'm Gabriel Goldfeder. I'm a Jewish life consultant, a.k.a. rabbi. The first king of Israel's name was Shaul. Shaul came from the tribe of Binyamin, the last son of Yaakov. It was a little bit surprising that the first king of Israel was chosen from the tribe of Binyamin because, as we see in the last two chapters of the book of Judges, which occurs right before Shaul is chosen as king, the tribe of Binyamin was so awful that they were almost entirely eliminated from the tribes of Israel. Based upon some last-minute compunctions and concerns from the other 11 tribes, the tribe of Binyamin was saved. But it is still surprising that the saved tribe, which was retained and revived not because of anything they did, but only because of the compassion and concern from the other 11 tribes would produce the first king of Israel. But that seems to be how God works, that God would choose this broken tribe and give them the chance to redeem themselves by guiding the Israelites toward the very unity that was that tribe's life raft, as it were. Shaul himself, the first king, also seemed to be surprised that he was chosen not because of who he was, but because of the tribe from which he emerged. So when the prophet Shmuel told him that he would be the king, he said, Why would the king be from Binyamin, the smallest tribe? And also, why from my clan, seeing as my clan is the smallest clan within the tribe of Binyamin? Just the same, the tribe was chosen, the clan was chosen, and Shaul was chosen to be the king, though he never seemed to be quite able to shake that inferiority complex that colored his early concerns. This question about his worthiness and the worthiness of his tribe came to a head when, after some successes as king, God told the prophet Shmuel to tell Shaul that it was time to defeat the nation clan of Amalek, the arch enemy of the Jewish people and that Shaul was to gather an army and to attack Amalek and to destroy them, man, woman, and child, as well as animals. Shaul did a mostly good job on this. He got rid of most of the animals and most of the people, though this situation was a pass-fail situation, and anything short of 100% following the orders of God, as communicated by Shmuel the prophet, would be considered to be a failure of mammoth and cosmic proportions. The next day, God 
appeared to Shmuel and told Shmuel that God regretted appointing Shaul as the king and told him why, and then sent Shmuel to talk to Shaul. When Shmuel approached Shaul, Shaul said, I did it, I did the will of God. But Shmuel said, huh, so what is that sound of animals that I hear? And Shaul said, the troops wanted to keep them alive, so I kept them alive. To which Shmuel said, Shaul, you might be small in your own eyes. That inferiority complex that you've been carrying around might be very real for you, but you are the head of the Jewish people. This is not a time to listen to your troops. This is a time to lead clearly according to the will of God. Not only did Shaul leave some animals alive, Shaul also left the king of Amalek alive for one night. That king, Agag, according to legend, used that one night to his advantage, somehow summoned his wife and impregnated her, and then she was able to escape. And then Agag was killed by the prophet Shmuel, but not before his lineage continued. This was a turning point for Shaul. He would now be slowly deposed as the king and replaced by David, the king who many consider to be one of the great kings of Israel. So what happens now? What happens to this tribe and to this clan? And the answer is that the responsibility for being rid of Amalek remains the charge and the job and the task and the tikkun, the fixing of this tribe and this clan. And we see that coming into focus and into reality in the Purim story, which occurs about 600 years after the death of Shaul. And we know this because Mordechai and Esther are from the same clan as Shaul. And we know this because Haman is referred to as Haagagi, the descendant of Agag, who is the same king that Shaul did not kill. So here we have a situation in which this clan made a mess and this clan has to clean it up which they do there are many beautiful symmetries between the Shaul story and the story of Purim one of the remarkable ones is that all of the king's ministers were expected to bow down to Haman And Mordechai, who was counted among those ministers, refused to bow down. And people were angry at Mordechai for not bowing down to Haman because it endangered them, as we see in the story. Because Haman was so angry that Mordechai refused to bow down, he decided to, God forbid, kill all of the Jewish people. But this might represent, in a certain kind of symmetrical way, a reversal of Shaul's acquiescence to the will of people below him 
Mordechai refused to acquiesce to the will of the other Jewish people of his time, even though it put them in danger. This story might seem far off and obscure, but in a certain way, it reflects the reality that families seem to retain a certain tikkun. Something occurs in the lineage of a family that sets the tone for the patterns of behavior within that family, sometimes over many years. And each generation is given, as it were, the opportunity to observe, to identify, and to do what they can to expose or reverse the tikkunim, the fixings that are coming about in that family. A small and relatively insignificant example is that my brother and I grew up in a family in which we never really saw our cousins. Granted, my father, rest in peace, his sister, my aunt, lived in California and we lived on the East Coast. And yet very little to no effort was made to make sure that we, the cousins, were able to get together with any kind of regularity and we never really got to know each other and we don't have any kind of real relationship with our cousins so my brother and i committed that we would make sure that our children would see their cousins so we for thank god many years now have made every effort to make sure we get together at least once or twice a year to make sure that the cousins can see each other oftentimes though the pain or the tikkun the fixing the pattern in a family is darker and deeper and less talked about and requires, in a sense, more courage in order to be able to expose it and work on it. Many families, for example, carry around patterns of not communicating, of not communicating feelings, of not communicating grudges and holding them inside. And it can feel very normal within that family to not speak. And then it can feel very strange when someone comes along in that family and tries to communicate that can feel like an aberration from that family but sometimes that actually is what is needed obviously it is best if parents can articulate the psychological emotional spiritual and logistical legacy that they would like to have perpetuated after they leave the world and so the Jewish tradition, like many or even all traditions, does certainly include the possibility or even the mandate of a last will and testament through which parents are given the opportunity to articulate what it is they would like their children to do. And sometimes that is purely logistical and has to do with burials or the like. Sometimes it is financial, but sometimes it includes those larger visions of what it is the parents would like their children to accomplish and to work on uh, after the parents passing. The question comes up though, do children actually have to listen to the last will and testament of their parents? So the Piske Chuvot, which is a compendium of questions and answers about Jewish law says, Katvu Rabi Me'achronim, many of the later opinions, later being defined as post 16th century, that it is in fact an obligation to adhere to the last will and testament of the parents, just like it is an obligation 
to listen to them and to follow their wishes while they are alive. But there are others, some say, there's no obligation after the death of the parents. Rather, the, the requirement to be concerned about and do what we can to elevate the kavod of our parents, the dignity and respect that is given to their name, we are, in a sense, responsible for their reputation after they die. But there's no requirement to actually adhere to the words that they leave behind in their last will in Testament. And this is because one of the primary reasons why it is important to listen to one's parents is to give them nachas, to give them that sense of pride and well-being that is gained from their kids doing what it is that they want them to do. And that doesn't apply after the parents pass in, pass on from this world. The gap between these opinions leaves space for the financial, logistical, spiritual, and emotional inheritors of the parents some space to consider whether or not a literal acquiescence to the last will and testament of the deceased is, in fact, the best thing to do for the survivors. Obviously, this is tricky and complicated and intertwined with the law of the land, for example, in American law, where obviously will and testaments are legally binding. We do certainly see situations in families and in the news in which the last will and testament caused such an amount of pain and anguish among the survivors that the gap in halakha could actually serve to bring shalom into the family that could be necessary for the ending of certain patterns that might, if perpetuated, lead to further generations of discord in the family. Obviously, this is not meant as a carte blanche invitation to ignore the will and testaments of parents, but it does provide some food for thought. If we could go back to that story of Shaul and his legacy, it provides an interesting insight into how sometimes families pass down implicit messages about who and what to be and not be. And sometimes those patterns are amazing and should be kept and maintained and solidified and endorsed and supported. And sometimes there are patterns that need to be broken in the context of a family. Looking forward to discussing this and hearing people's thoughts on the matter because this feels important in a lot of ways. Thank you.